I've got a bit of a Coach's Corner episode for you today. I'm joined by age group triathlete and TriDot coach John Mayfield. John has been using TriDot since 2010, so more than 12 years, and coaching with TriDot since 2012. And he's coached hundreds of athletes ranging from first-timer beginners all the way up to Kona qualifiers and our elite professional triathletes. He's got some really great insights into training principles. And what I wanted to pick his brain on today is some of the key training sessions that every triathlete needs to be doing if you want to maximize performance. Welcome to the Triathlon Nutrition Academy podcast, the show designed to serve you up evidence-based sports nutrition advice from the experts. Hi, I'm your host, Taryn, accredited practicing dietitian, advanced sports dietitian, and founder of Dietitian Approved. Listen as I break down the latest evidence to give you practical, easy-to-digest strategies to train hard, recover faster, and perform at your best. You have so much potential, and I want to help you unlock that with the power of nutrition. Let's get into it. Welcome to the TNA podcast, John, and congratulations for a ripping race in Ironman Florida event last weekend. Congratulations. Was that your 10th Ironman? That was my 10th Ironman. So yeah, thank you. Appreciate that. It was a good day. And PB for you? It was, yeah. So I barely squeaked in under 11 hours, which had been my goal for a while. I I chased several Ironman trying to get there under that 11-hour mark, and last Saturday was was my day. Yeah, well done. 10.57 is still sub-11 hours. Claim that. So as an experienced age group triathlete yourself, and you've been coaching for the past, what, 10 years, I wanted to get your thoughts on some of the key training sessions that every triathlete should be including in their programming. Now, when we have to train for not one, but three sports, we can be pretty time poor, right? And we want to make sure that we're getting the best bang for our buck out of training. We're not wasting our time doing junk miles or sessions that aren't going to help us reach our goals. We know that some athletes maybe do their own programming. Some athletes train in a squatter environment and have more of a group program. And then others have their own coach, like people like yourself, where they have a very specific, detailed and custom training program to help them fit in exactly what they need to within their lifestyle. But it doesn't really matter what method you're using. There's definitely some key sessions that we'll talk about today that you're going to need to do if you want to race in triathlon. So how many sessions do you think we need to talk about that are key, essential, every triathlete needs to be doing in their program every week? Specifically, we could talk through hundreds, you know, that are important to do and get in there, but they're largely variations of kind of the same thing. So I thought we would talk through a couple more principles. I brought one for the swim, bike and run, but they largely translate across the board as well. So I have three specific that I kind of want to talk through. Okay, cool. Nice and tidy, neat little package of three. Let's get straight into it then. What is the first key session that every triathlete needs to be doing to maximize their performance? Really what it comes down to in swimming is to be a good, fast swimmer. You have to have good, proper technique. So there's the saying that practice makes perfect, but that's not really the case, especially not in in swimming. It's really more perfect practice makes perfect. You have to do things right in order for them to work properly. So, you know, there's the the old saying, you can't out-exercise a bad diet. That's also true, like in swimming, you can't out-volume bad technique. And a lot of people try that. You know, they just think if I go and I swim more and more and more, I'm eventually just going to get get better. 
there's a little bit of maybe some truth or, or maybe a little bit of mistruth in that, in that, especially starting out early, you start to figure out some things. You can read some articles and, and, and make some adjustments and kind of figure out what works and what doesn't. And then as you do that, you know, you may see some improvements initially, but that's going to plateau very, very quickly. But then what we'll see is, is people just try to do more. If some volume is good, more is better. That's a very common thought process uh, in triathlon training. A lot of times athletes see more seasoned athletes or even professionals doing these tremendous amounts of volume. They think that's where the gains are to be made. But especially in the swim, it really comes back to technique. It's critical to to have good, proper technique, good skills. And that's really where drill sessions really come in. So those drills are going to reinforce the keys of swimming, those things that are going to move us through the water quickly and efficiently. Then you can build the volume as, as necessary. But to be a good, fast swimmer, it really is all about technique. A lot of triathletes get into swimming as adults, so they don't have that background. So they get in the pool and just try to figure things out. And in doing so, they establish a lot of bad habits. So that's the advantage those kids have is they're not having to overcome those bad habits. They're they're starting off with, with good technique. They have that coach instilling in them the proper way, proper technique. So that's really what we want to focus on, especially for, for newer triathletes. You either come from two camps, right? You swim as a kid, so swimming comes natural to you and you don't struggle with technique, or you've come to swimming later in life as an adult and you're having to learn how to do that. And swimming is actually really difficult. So we're able to do is improve our pace through technique and then improve the efficiency. So initially what we want to do is move through the water faster. And then once we get proficient in moving through the water quickly, we want to do so with less energy expenditure. So it's it's about generating that speed and then generating that speed at a at a lower energy cost. So becoming more efficient as we're moving through the water. So a lot of this is done through drills, which are going to reinforce that proper technique. There's a couple things that are, are pretty universal that we, we want to work on hand entry, high elbow catch, early vertical forearm, kind of those those different things. But I think a critical component of this is, again, kind of going back to, to doing the right things right. It's not enough just to go and do a drill in a session. You need to, one, make sure the drill is going to be beneficial for you. So not all drills are going to be beneficial for all swimmers. Drills are made to reinforce certain things. And if a swimmer is already doing those or maybe even overdoing some things, a drill that reinforces that is going to be counterproductive for them. And then you have to do those drills right. So it goes back to to kind of not practice making perfect, but perfect practice making perfect. Because if you're doing the drill wrong, then it's not going to be beneficial for you. So it's critical to identify what are the drills that are going to help you improve your swim technique and then really learning how to do those drills properly so that they can be beneficial. So you can develop that muscle memory, so you can develop the strength along with that. I am a big fan of dry land exercises, specifically dry land tubing. So these are using resistance bands. Uh, they have some that are, are swim specific. And this dry land tubing is, is really beneficial in, in two ways. One, it builds strength. So it's mimicking the muscles used to catch and pull that water to move through it. And even does so, I would say, more efficiently. So you can actually build strength through those dry land tubing sessions, but then it's also much easier to identify your technique and work on technique when you're not underwater. Sometimes what you think you're doing and what you're actually doing are two different things. So this dry land tubing is a great opportunity to to really see what you're actually doing and then develop there that muscle memory that is so critical in swimming. So this is fantastic uh, for those time crunched athletes like so many of us are. I would say on average, these sessions take anywhere from five to 10 minutes. So super easy to do. These are one of my favorites. They go on a door handle or, or really any 
solid object you can wrap it around. And I know if, if even if I can't get to the pool, I can take 10 minutes and knock out a really good session that is going to mimic what I would have done in the pool. Obviously, it is important to get in the water and do it. Um, but this is actually something we did a, a research study back during the pandemic when everything was shut down. So largely worldwide, no one had access to a pool. So what do we do when we don't have access to a pool? Well, we knew that... Um, through our, our years of experience and research that the Australian tubing was highly effective in building and retaining the th swim threshold. So we had several hundred participants that took part in this and we had them go back to what was the last baseline hundred that they had done. Everyone had a little bit different time. The minimum was like six weeks, but most had more like six months that they, they were out of the pool, but they were doing these dry land exercises three times per week. We were prescribing different sessions every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Once they were able to get back in the pool, we had them do three swim sessions, just kind of get the proprioception back, get a feel for the water and retest that hundred. And the average was like two seconds slower. Now the stamina wasn't there, but that stamina actually comes back pretty quick. What is hard to develop is that technique, the muscle memory, all those kinds of things. So I would say the, the key session on swimming is really focusing on technique. And a great way to do that is combining your swimming with good drills and adding in that dry land tubing. Swimming is a great key session and I am blessed with a long history of swimming. I think I could swim before I could walk. And so I don't have to think about how I put my hands in the water or any of that sort of stuff. But it's kind of like riding a bike as an adult as well. You can see people that didn't ride a bike as a kid and it takes a little bit of time to get comfortable doing that. So I love that that is a key session. And also I love the suggestion to do some dry land technique stuff because, yeah, if you travel a lot, you're busy, you're away, you may not have access to a pool or sometimes it's just bloody freezing in winter and you don't want to get in. There is an option that can maintain that technique with the dry land band. So that's awesome. So that swim technique side of thing, how often should somebody be including a technique session into their programming and how would you identify what sort of drills that you need to be doing to make your technique better? Every session needs to have some technique work in it because even as you mentioned, those that, that have years of experience and have great muscle memory, that can lapse or you can develop some new patterns or new new muscle memory that may not be correct. So it's always important and a good idea to reinforce that proper technique through drills. So I would say never go away from drills completely. You know, the more experienced, the more proficient you are as a swimmer, the more time you can spend on on building threshold, building stamina, whatever it is that you're, you're going to be doing. But it's always a good idea to include at least a certain amount of technique. Maybe it's, you know, the first 15 minutes of one session per week. Or for those that are, are relatively new to swimming, it may be two thirds of the session three times a week, kind of depending on where you're at in your swim experience, swim journey. How much work do you need to do? How good is your proprioception? How quickly do you learn? You know, that's certainly an aspect to it as well. Some, some swimmers have very high proprioception. These, these are a gift to work with as a swim coach, because you can say, you need to put your hand right here and do this motion. And then they do it and they never do anything else. Other people will say, I thought I was doing that. I'm trying really hard to do that. And they're doing absolutely <laughs> nothing like that. So for those, they're going to need more time to, to really develop that feel, the proprioception to, to kind of have that spatial awareness of what their body is doing. So I would say for those newer swimmers, it, it really needs to be a focus is developing that really good stroke as before you try to build a whole lot of speed or stamina around it, really focus on, on the technique. But even for those that um, have been swing for years, it's still important to make sure 
that you're maintaining a good technique. And, and again, vast majority of swimmers still have opportunities uh, for improvement. There, there are small things that we can do, small tweaks that can be made that that oftentimes can can have a little breakthrough. You know, you may be a stalled in your progress for even a number of years, and there may just be some small thing that you don't even realize that you're doing or a small improvement, small tweak that that can lead to to big gains. And that's that's really where it's great to have a knowledgeable coach that can look at your stroke, see what you're doing, and then prescribe those drills. As I talked about, it's not just about doing random drills. It's about doing drills that are going to help you and improve your stroke. So having that knowledgeable resource that can prescribe those drills and, and help you identify what are the drills that are going to be beneficial for you as to those that may even be counterproductive. Yeah, that's why triathlon's so addictive, right? Because there is always something that you can do a little bit better. And that's across three sports, not one. So definitely very addictive if you have that high achieving competitive type nature, which a lot of triathletes do have. Okay. So that's an excellent key session. My only thought is I'm going to play devil's advocate here because I know a lot of triathletes hate swimming. They suck at swimming because it's not their strength. And it is the shortest part of a triathlon too. And so they're like, ah, stuff it. I'll just focus on my run because that'll give me a better overall result. But the better you are at swimming, the more efficient you are, the better your technique is, the less that is going to wear you out so that by the time you get on the bike, you're not absolutely exhausted and struggling for that first bit. So any advice from a coach's perspective on those people that are listening going, ah, stuff it. I'm just going to focus on the back end of my race where I'm going to make up more time. There is some truth to that. You know, statistically, the bike is, is the longest and a lot of times there's more to be made up on the bike and the run. So there's there's certainly some some logic and even truth to that. And that's really where technique comes in because technique isn't all about speed. It's also about that efficiency. So if you're coming out of the swim so far back that you can't be competitive, if you are an athlete that's wanting to, to get on the podium, qualify for championship races, that sort of thing, but your swim is holding you back and, and you're, you're getting out of the water so far back that even if you have a great swim, great bike, you're not there. Then, then obviously that's that's a, a huge deal. Or kind of as you mentioned, if if you are expending so much energy on the swim that you're you're not meeting your potential on the bike and run, then then obviously you're wasting a lot of potential there. If you're you know got that strong bike, got that strong run, but if you're just gassed, your heart rate is through the roof, you're you're burning a ton of calories. One because you've been in there so long, and two you've been working so hard. It's all about reaching your potential. So that really comes back to mindset. We see that a lot. That's something that I've had to deal with over the years because I'm not a natural swimmer. It's not my favorite, but um, I, I would say as my mindset has changed over the years, I've really enjoyed swimming more and more. So, you know, take it as a challenge. As we said, uh, triathletes are competitive and this is a great opportunity for you to compete with yourself. Just make yourself uh, go to the swim, resolve to be a better swimmer, resolve to do whatever it takes um, to become a fast, efficient swimmer. Uh, keep working at it, keep plugging away and uh, you'll, you'll, you'll make those breakthroughs. And then, uh, you know, be, be coming out, uh, with the front pack swimmers. Yeah. Love it. Love it. So what is your second key session that we need to do as a triathlete? Moving on to, to building threshold on the bike. So, uh, really the bike is all about the FTP, that functional threshold power. So whether you're racing short course, long course, it really comes back to how much power can you generate? What are those watts per kilogram that are going to carry you throughout the triathlon? We, we tend to think of, of long course and there it's all about stamina because those bike legs are so long, uh, whether it's, it's a 70.3 or full distance triathlon, that's a long way to go. Um, so you have to have a, a high amount of endurance, a high amount of stamina, but, uh, as, as important as that stamina endurance is, 
what's going to determine your time, how quickly you go, how efficient you are, is how much power you can generate relative to, to your weight, your aerodynamic drag, and all those things. So it's really about building the functional threshold power. And the great thing is, what I love about focusing on, on threshold, and, and this is true for the swim, bike, and run, one, it lasts a long time. So I say your stamina is kind of easy to build in, in just six, eight, 10 weeks. You can build a, a very high amount of, of stamina, but it takes longer to build threshold. But as soon as you lay off those long sessions, your endurance is going to drop. You're going to feel it. That stamina doesn't stick around as long. It's not as sticky. What I love about threshold is it tends to stick around longer. So it takes a little longer to build, but once you have have it, you tend to retain it for longer periods of time. So it's easier to, to make those continual gains. So uh, when you are properly training uh, and, and focusing on building that functional threshold power, it's it's a great opportunity to have uh, just a, a long uh, lead of, of gains over, over the months, over the years, over the seasons. Um, so you can increase that power throughout the season and then year over year continue to get stronger and stronger. And that's really true on the swim bike and run. Um, and the great thing about this too, especially for the time crunched athlete is it doesn't take a whole lot of time to focus on this. In fact, by definition or by nature, we can only hold, um, these higher intensity sessions for limited amounts of time. Um, so, uh, what I'm going to say for a key session on the bike, building the functional threshold power is um, anywhere from 10 minutes to 40 minutes, what I would call a zone four power. So this is, this is give or take around that functional threshold power number. So the standard definition of functional threshold power is, is 60 minute maximum power, which you can sustain for 60 minutes. And, and there's different ways to, to determine that. Um, the, probably the most popular is that 20 minute power test doing an, an all out max for 20 minutes to see what power you can sustain for 20 minutes, extrapolate that over 60 minutes. And, and, uh, that is one way of, of estimating what your functional threshold power is. And then holding that in the, in those sessions, not a lot of fun, but also if you do those on a regular basis, there's benefit to it. So one, you're doing that hard session and it only takes 20 minutes, right? So we're talking about efficiency with time here. So you do say a 20 minute warm up, you do that 20 minute power test, 10 minute cooldown. you know, there's your 50 minute session. So you're in and out, you've had a very effective session and uh, one, you've, you've uh, updated your, your FTP number. So you know what that is. And two, you've gotten a great training session in, uh, in addition to that, you've learned how to suffer. Um, so that's something I think a lot of times, uh, we overlook is, um, there is a certain aspect to triathlon, um, that, that is building that, that grit, that tenacity, and uh, doing those really hard sessions provides some of that. Um, so you get the physical training, but there's also that mental aspect to it as well, especially in short course. I always say the person who is willing to hurt the most and hurt the longest is going to win the race. And, you know, that's a critical component to the race as well is developing that. So again, those sessions are anywhere, I would say, uh, at least 10 minutes at that threshold power. Uh, up to 40 minutes would be kind of the max that you would want to do of that threshold power uh, in in one session. Uh, and then we can break that down. So not I'm not suggesting you do one 40 minute um, session, but you know if if you're if you're to that point, you know two by 20 minutes uh, with a couple minutes of recovery in between, that's a great session, um, and you're going to build a lot of power uh, in there. Uh, and, and what I would say is start off smaller. Maybe that 10 minutes, maybe it's three by five minutes at that power with two or three minutes of recovery in between each of those. So now you're getting 15 minutes of that threshold power, that zone four power, a couple minutes of recovery in between, and then build as you go throughout a cycle. You know, maybe it's a, a four, six, eight week cycle that you're you're doing. Uh, increase the amount of time. So maybe it's three by five, then three by seven, then three by 10. 
Um, maybe it's reducing the amount of recovery in between. So maybe it's starting with the three to four minutes recovery in between and dropping that down, something like two by 20 minutes with two minutes recovery in between. And then repeat that functional threshold test. Now your functional threshold is going to be higher. So you kind of start that cycle over where, where maybe you're back to three by five, but uh, you know, your wattage is increased. So the wattage that you were holding previously, uh, you're now maybe a couple watts higher than that. That would be the 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 expectation and the goal is to uh, repeat that cycle over and over, but repeat it at a higher wattage than you were um, before. And then two, I, I, I love um, trainer turbo work, uh, especially from that efficiency time crunch standpoint. It's just, it's it's quicker and easier uh, to hop on the bike indoors than, than to go through all the things you have to go through um, outdoors. So I'm a big advocate for that. And, and this is always something too that uh, they say, well, what about I'm, I'm racing a real hilly course? Um, I'm racing a course with a ton of elevation. How do I, how do I duplicate that? Um, so I always say there's a couple things here. The body doesn't know distance. Um, so you can go 0.0 miles and, and still have a great section. Your body knows time and it knows intensity. So um, that's how we, we, we duplicate the distance. Um, but the same thing is true with elevation. Your body doesn't know whether you gained, uh, you know, 500 meters of elevation gain or zero meters of elevation gain. Uh, it, it understands time and intensity. So we can even duplicate those hilly courses on uh, an indoor session uh, by varying the cadence. So basically to, to climb a hill, uh, generally it's, it's an increase in power uh, and generally it's a decrease in cadence. So, uh, you know, if you're, if you're going to be racing on that hilly course, you want to get in plenty of these threshold sessions and uh, just drop your cadence down and uh, your body doesn't know that uh, you went 0.0 miles or kilometers and gained uh, zero feet or zero meters of elevation gain. But uh, those adaptations are still going to be there and uh, still going to be ready for that race course. Another great session. And again, kind of going down the path of there's always little bits that you can improve. So this FTP, like building that on the bike, it never ends. It just keeps going. So when you're talking about putting those sessions into a week, are we looking at doing a session like that every week or every couple of weeks? How often should we be doing that? It's going to vary depending on the athlete and their what what they're training for. Um, the great thing is a short course athlete can, can almost focus on this exclusively. Um, obviously we want some recovery in there as well. Um, and, and it's going to vary based on the athlete. Typically, uh, the younger, uh, more competitive athletes have a, um, higher capacity for this, this higher intensity work, uh, older athletes, you know, we, we need to be careful with how much we're, we're prescribing for those, but it, it just needs to be appropriate to the athlete. And, and then what, um, what, what kind of racing that they're, that they're doing. But, um, I would say one to two sessions, uh, per week, um, uh, potentially even a third kind of depending exactly on how, uh, your, your training is, is prescribed what your frequency and sequence of, of all those sessions are. But, um, you know, when it's properly prescribed with, uh, the, the proper amount of intensity, the proper rate of intensity, and then the proper amount of recovery in between, uh, you know, we can do these several times uh, a week. I would say anywhere two, three times a week on the bike specifically. Yeah, awesome. And I guess from my perspective, that is a key session where we need to support that maximally with nutrition. You're not going to be able to absorb those types of training sessions, particularly if they're multiple times a week, if you haven't got your nutrition sorted around those types of things. So we want to try and recover and back up quickly and that's not going to happen if you don't put those right building blocks in there. So I love that it's a key session. And even if 
a triathlete listening is just thinking, okay, that's the red session in my week. That's the session I really need to support the most with nutrition and work on that one first before you start tackling the other sessions in your week. Because that is like a key performance driver that's going to make us a better triathlete overall. That's nutrition before, during, and after. So, so certainly critical to the support of that of that session. Amen. <laughs> okay, so we've got two great key sessions so far, swimming technique and building that FTP on the bike. What's our third session that every triathlete needs to be including? This is one of my favorites, probably my favorite session of the week, and, and, and for a couple of reasons here, is the run off the bike. So there's something about it. I think running off the bike for me, again, I've, I've been a triathlete for, for well over a decade now. Um, I'm, I've been running off the bike for a number of years, and uh, my body knows how to do that. It's definitely a skill, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and that's one of the reasons to, to do it is to develop the ability to do it and to do it well, to teach the body what it's like, because it is very different than just starting off from a cold run and going out that way. So in my state of, of triathlon, I've gotten pretty good at it. And for me, it's just kind of a natural progression I, from the bike to the run. Um, and for me, it's, it's just a super fun session. One, I, I've got this great warm up. Um, you know, I am, I am on the, I'm on the downside of the 40 plus group. So, um, you know, my, my body appreciates that, uh, longer warm up um, as, as opposed to, you know, just starting off cold and, and doing a, a normal run warm up. But, you know, if you're going and doing an hour bike session and then doing a runoff, um, certainly the body is, is in a, a very warm state, uh, at that point. So it's just conducive, um, to that. And, you know, especially when you've got that good cadence on the bike, your feet and legs are used to that higher turnover rate. So that's a great opportunity, especially if if you have kind of an unnaturally low cadence. This is a great opportunity to work on that. Build the cadence on the bike, um, especially, you know, kind of 80 to 90, preferably probably closer to 90 if we are looking to run off afterwards. So um, everyone's cadence is a little different, but kind of rule of thumb is, is you know, give or take that 90 um 90 steps, 180 steps uh, per minute. When you when we reinforce that on the bike, it's going to translate over to the run. So spin those uh, spin those pedals at 90 RPM. And then uh, when you jump off and start to run, your legs are going to be used to that 90 RPM um, cadence. So a uh, great opportunity there to, to focus on, on that. Um, that's especially important in, in the shorter course racing where you're coming off and going into that dead sprint, uh, running as fast as you can. Um, off the bike. So, um, the great thing about these two, especially for those time crunched athletes is the run off the bikes don't need to be long. I, I see this is actually a, a fairly common mistake that, uh, triathletes will make. And, and it's one of those things that's kind of intuitive. You know, if I'm going to be running five uh, K off the bike in my race or running a marathon off the bike in my race, then maybe I need to do that in training. Um, but really to get those adaptations that we're looking to achieve, buy these off the bike run sessions, um, they happen very quickly. Um, so, you know, the, especially for that new person who's not used to that sensation of, of running off the bike, the, the legs are going to be very heavy. The feet are going to be very heavy. Um, but that goes away generally quickly, you know, within the first couple minutes, um, your body has, has adapted to running. It's getting used to the, the feel of running and, and you're good to go so far as that is. So um, for me, I, I, I say rule of thumb, 20 minutes off the bike is really all you need for a high quality uh, run off the bike session. For me, my longest, like I said, I, I, I just raced Ironman uh, over this past weekend. My longest run off the bike was 40 minutes. And for me, that was much more about dialing in my pacing and my nutrition 
on as I was starting the run, as opposed to just developing that feel. Uh, so that feel was was there. It was you know the first kilometer or two I was kind of dialing that in. And after that, my focus was more so on dialing in my nutrition, my hydration, my pace, all of those things. So uh, I did just a couple of those after those long bike sessions um, to have that dialed in. But but yeah, as, as a rule of thumb, um, whether it's a 60 minute session during the week or after my uh, longer long bike um, on the weekend, I, my rule of thumb is, is 20 minutes uh, off the bike. But I would say the, the less experienced athlete I would say do those more frequently. So uh, even if they're short uh, for for a new triathlete, I would say do do a couple minutes off of every bike session just to really develop that adaptation, develop what it feels like to run off the bike and run off the bike well. Um, so you know, again, just just leave the running shoes there, uh, throw them on treadmill or head out on the road just for ten minutes uh, after a session is is going to to be beneficial. The more experienced the athlete less frequently. Um, so for me, I, I, over this last training cycle, for me, I generally would just do a runoff after that long bike session. I am that time crunch athlete. So I would forgo that during the week, but, but made sure to get that in, uh, on, on that weekend session. It's a really good point. Like you don't have to run a marathon to run a marathon. So it's good to hear that advice from, you know, somebody that's got knowledge and skills in this space that it's just about managing your overall load and injury risk, right? And you can get those adaptations really quickly to understand how the body works when you then go from cycling to then running. And it's a completely different thing. How do you go with the flying dismount? Do you do that off every like run off the bike or do you actually stop and put your gear down and then transition into a run? I recommend it. I think that is is something that can be quite efficient you know, especially in the shorter course races. Uh, but, but also, I mean, they could also be true in the long course races as well, especially if you're on that pointy end of the competitive end of the spectrum. If you're looking to make podium or qualify for those championship races, oftentimes seconds matter and that can help there. For me, I also just think it's, it's easier for me to run through transition barefoot as opposed to in my cycling shoes. I hate running in cycling shoes. So for me, um, that's just another reason to, to develop that ability to, to do that, uh, flying mount or flying dismount. Um, I will say that, um, the dismount I think is probably easier, uh, and a little less intimidating than, than the mount. Uh, you know, you definitely want to practice, practice, practice. I say practice on the trainer, um, where it's much more harder to take a spill practice on the trainer and then kind of just in a grassy area, someplace soft. If you do fall, certainly not for the first time in a race. But um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of good resources out there, YouTube videos, kinds of things that show exactly. It doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be super, super fast either. I actually don't do a true flying mount because I actually will stop uh, very, very briefly. And I actually step over my top tube. I have my shoes in the pedal using those rubber bands to hold it in, in position. Um, and then you know, it, it takes half a second for me to, to step over that top tube. I'm on my shoe and then I'm off and, and putting the shoes on, uh, generating some, some power, some speed, momentum um, early on. And then once I'm kind of up to speed, then I can put my, my feet into the shoes. Um, and so it's still very efficient. It saves time. Um, but for me, it's a little lower risk. Uh, and, you know, it may take me a second or half a second longer, but um, I, I have a pretty good confidence that uh, I'm, I'm not going to embarrass myself too bad there uh, at, at the mount line. And then same thing on the dismount line. It's really about getting out of the shoes um, in plenty of time. That's that's something that uh, we, we see as a pretty common mistake is, is athletes will wait too long or they'll, they'll kind of fumble with their shoes. They're not efficient in getting the feet out. Um, and I would say the, the critical component on, on both the mount and the dismount is ensuring that you can do so with your eyes up. 
that's when bad things happen. But we have a tendency to look down at what we're doing. You know, if we're trying to put our foot into a shoe that's mounted to a bike pedal, or if we're trying to mess with with straps or anything like that, we want to look down and see what we're doing. It's definitely where the most carnage is in a race, isn't it? That mountain dismount line. Yeah, especially some of those like sprint and Olympic distance races. It can be entertaining to see exactly how people choose to mount and dismount their bike. Yeah. I love a good flying dismount. It's like the funnest part of a race for me, but I do what you do. I put rubber bands on my shoes and like just kind of do a quick step over. When in an Ironman distance event, like that that full distance, 140.6, that one second to do that is nothing over that whole duration of the race and, and way less risky. So the flying mount would become much more important if you're aiming to go fast in a sprint and Olympic distance race. Yeah. And that's really where it matters. But, you know, it's it's what you're comfortable with. I, I would say that's the number one key is, you know, don't be pressured to do it. You, you know, you don't have to do it to be a triathlete or anything like that. Uh, you know, I've worked, I've coached professional triathletes that uh, aren't comfortable doing it and they don't, you know, they'll put their shoes on in the change tent. You know, it doesn't take that much longer. Even the pros are out there for, for give or take four hours on the, on the bike. And if taking 30 seconds to a minute to put your shoes on in transition is, you know, that's, you get them somewhere else. You know, it's, it's definitely not a, a win or lose kind of thing. It could come down to that, but it's pretty rare that we see those races decided by such a small factor. And hey, if you work on your swim technique a little bit, you can make up that second really easily, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so for a fourth bonus tip, is there anything that we can do to train our transition? I know we've just talked about mounts and dismounts. I'm really passionate about triathletes getting the heck out of transition. They muck around so much in there and waste so much time. Is there any little bonus tips you've got to help make that transition process faster, smoother, easier? Yeah, a couple things here. And, and I will say, I, I've never been all that fast at swimming, cycling, or running, but I can transition like a ninja. So so now we're kind of getting into my wheelhouse. I can transition with the best of them. Can't swim, bike, or run with the fast guys, but but my transitions are pretty good. And they are, I would say, for two, two main reasons. One is um, minimizing the amount of movements that I make in transition. So um, we want to have a clear thought out process of what are the things that I need in transition um, and what are the things I need to do. So um, like for me, I come into transition uh, transition one, I have my helmet there, I have my glasses, My as we, we talked about, my shoes are already on the bike. So all I have to do is put on my helmet, put on my visor and, and I'm headed out. Um, so I have everything set up. So like my helmet is, is set up in a way on my bars and, and it'll vary based on the transition setup. And, you know, if it's windy and you know, I may put my helmet on the ground, um, but it's set up in such a way that I just pick it up and put it directly on my head. So I'm thinking about, uh, even which way the helmet is oriented, um, to where it's just very simple, put it on, you know, not thinking about a whole lot, not doing a whole lot. And then I don't have a bunch of stuff sitting around either to, to distract me. The only thing there in T1 on top of my bike, helmet, visor, and and then I'm gone. So it's it's about minimizing the amount of stuff you have in transition and then minimizing the amount of movements that you have to make. And then it's about practice. Know what you do and and then just get really good at doing it. For me, there's a couple more steps in in my T2, but uh, kind of same thing. And, and, I, and I love this tip is, especially if you wear a cap uh, out on the run, that cap is, is a great little bag that can actually put a bunch of stuff in and go with you. So instead of like my race number belt, I will put that in my cap. My sunglasses go in my, in my cap. If I'm carrying any nutrition gels or anything like that, all of that goes in my cap. So I slip on my run shoes real quick. For me, my preference is short course racing, sprint Olympic. I use elastic laces. If I'm racing 70.3 or Ironman distance, I'll take those couple extra seconds to actually tie. Uh, I feel a little bit better with uh, the laces 
Um, so depending on which distance I'm, I'm racing is going to determine which, which laces I have, but especially in those short course races where I'm really trying to minimize my transition time. Um, basically I get my shoes on, uh, with those elastic laces and then I grab that cap that has everything in it. And then as I'm running out of transition, um, I can throw on my sunglasses. Uh, I can put on my, my race number belt and, you know, once everything is empty, then the cap goes on my head and, uh, I'm, I'm good to go. So instead of standing there at my bike doing all those things, I'm actually doing them as I'm moving through. Um, another tip is, um, and this is one of those like fraction of a second kind of things, but instead of uh, using that race number belt and buckling it around your waist, you can start with that uh, already buckled and then just kind of put it on over your head. Um, so it, it's, it's again, one of the things to practice and get good at, but this takes like two times practicing and you'll nail it. Um, you just, you got to kind of, you know, get your arms through it and then it's around your waist, but it's super easy to do while you're running. It's easier to do that while running at a transition than it is to, to buckle, um, that, that race number belt. And, you know, especially in that short course race now where, where seconds really can matter, uh, that could conceivably be, be the distance between first place, second place, or even falling off the podium. So many great tips there, John. It makes me want to race again. It's been a while since I've raced, you know, because kids have been a bit of a spanner in that for me. This body's not ready to race yet, but I do all of those things and it makes me feel really excited that that is what good athletes are actually doing out there. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with me today, John, and the listeners. I know that there's some really good gold nugget tips in there and some key things that they can implement straight away to make sure they're maximizing their training programs with things that actually matter, things that are going to push the needle because your programming can be really full. You might work full time. You probably have family commitments as well. And, you know, we need to be making sure that we're getting the best bang for our buck out of our sessions. And you've just gone through some really great things through swim, bike, run, and then, you know, bonus transitions to make our race day as fast and efficient as possible, because that's what we do it for, right? Like, yeah, we want to have a great time and be social, but at the end of the day, we put in all these hours training to maximize our performance on race day. And it doesn't mean necessarily hitting the podium. It could just be doing better than the last time, or it could mean getting to the finish line in one piece. But some really great tips there to start to think strategically about your programming and make sure that what you're doing counts. So what's next on the cards for you then? You've just done an Ironman. I know you've had a busy racing schedule over the last sort of six months, but what's next for John Mayfield? So I have one more race this season and it is middle distance race in Daytona, Florida. It's at the Daytona International Speedway. It's uh, Clash Daytona, which is part of the Challenge family. We're actually camping in RVs in the Daytona Speedway. So that's something I've not done before, but they bill it as a great thing. You you basically uh, are sleeping right next to transition. So you roll out of bed and you're in the transition area. So it's a great race, ton of fun, kind of iconic for the motorsports folks. Oh, amazing. Well, good luck for that one. And if people want more, what's the best way to connect with you? Email is great, uh, john.mayfield at tridot.com or uh, on Facebook as as well. Like I mentioned earlier, I'm on the backside of, of 40, so I'm not so much on some of those other uh, social media channels, but you can still find me on Facebook. All right. Well, thank you so much again, John. I hope the listeners really enjoyed that as much as I did. Good. Yeah, my pleasure. I enjoyed it and uh, I hope they benefit from it as well. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Triathlon Nutrition Academy podcast. I would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or want to share with me what you've learned, email me at podcast at dietitianapproved.com. You could also spread the word by leaving me a review and taking a screenshot of you listening to the show. 
Don't forget to tag me on social media at dietitian.approved so I can give you a shout out too. If you want to learn more about what we do, head to dietitianapproved.com. And if you want to learn more about the Triathlon Nutrition Academy program, head to dietitianapproved.com forward slash academy. Thanks for joining me and I look forward to helping you smash it in the fourth leg. Nutrition! Nutrition!